the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Before we start this fantastic episode of Magic Markets, I do need to tell you that the contents of this podcast are for information purposes only and they do not constitute investment advice, nor do they represent a solicitation of any member of the public to invest in any security. The investment vehicles managed by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management are available to qualified or sophisticated investors only. All listeners should seek professional financial advice prior to making any investment. Welcome to episode 81 of Magic Markets. And there's been a lot of fun before we climbed on here because uh, we're with the Westbrook team and we've really enjoyed getting to know these guys over the past few months. And uh, Richard Ashton has joined us again from the UK and he nearly didn't make it because of a public sector transport strike, I think it was, Richard, which really sounds like a South African story. Um, you know, Mo's had internet issues today in Canada. I mean, Dino, you know... <laughs> <laughs> the grass isn't always greener, clearly. You know, we'll just stay here in South Africa with our perfect internet and, and all of that. You know what, Ghost? I've got my inverter rocking and rolling and uh, nothing's going to get in the way of this podcast. Yeah, exactly. We've been dodging load shedding the whole day. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, we do what we do. Mo, Richard, Dino, welcome to Magic Markets. We're going to have some fun tonight. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Ghost, I was going to say you're dodging the, the whole fact that we've been dovetailing around your lack of power down there. So uh, always fun having the guys from Westbrook on. Uh, and guys, I'm excited about today's discussion. You know, I think we're going to be discussing, we, we always go down the alternative route with you because that's that's the DNA of Westbrook. And I think it's so important, specifically given where markets have gone over the last couple of weeks. I mean, listed markets have been completely pummeled. We're officially in bear territory. And for me, that's why it's all the more exciting to be speaking about your universe today, about alternatives, because the real beauty of the space you guys play in is that they tend to be non-correlated returns. You know, they tend to be returns that don't necessarily follow the high beta of markets. And today we're speaking about hybrid capital. So welcome to Dino. Welcome to Richard. Let's uh, let's have some fun with this topic. Thanks, Mo. Looking forward to it. So Richard, you suffered to get here. You had to catch a train. We don't know from where or how or what you managed to do. I had this vision of you riding on the roof at one point, but here you are. So I think it's only fair that you get the first question, given what you went through to be on this podcast. What is 
hybrid capital? Is this a bit like mezzanine finance, which is a term that some people might have heard before? You know, in your own words, how would you explain what this actually is? Yeah, so look, hybrid capital is a fancy word for uh, effectively two different instruments, right? Uh, really, where you're looking at uh, two two instruments, one being debt and the other one kind of being an equity type return, and you're putting them together effectively to form a hybrid capital instrument, right? Where you've got really a tailored finance solution uh, to mitigate risks through the downside protections you get on the debt. So you get the security, the covenants, the monitoring procedures, the defined exit term, um, and then you get it enhanced by the uncapped equity upside that you get as a you know as a either a sweetener through warrants or through direct co-invest alongside our equity partners. You know in this environment, and this is a strategy we've been playing on for the last eighteen months since kind of June twenty twenty, um, is that you know there's this asymmetric return profile where if you know if the business does turn turn down from a trading perspective, you know and the business can produce cash. Or you know, and protect the debt instrument. You're quite certain that you get you'll get your capital back plus the minimum return that we build into the debt. And if the business actually turns the other way and outperforms, then your equity is in the money as well. Um, but the chance of total capital loss through the hybrid instruments should be lower than a traditional ordinary equity instrument. So really, we look at it as a debt-led approach to private equity. And- I mean, just to clarify on that, I mean, it's a hybrid. You've indicated that you've got the two components, the debt component, the equity component. So naturally on a risk return spectrum, you'd be sitting below pure equity. You'd be sitting above conventional debt. Uh, and it just gives you this very nice asymmetric payoff profile that you describe, which has kind of limited downside to a degree. You've got debt covenants. You've got some security, I'm assuming, against assets. So I'm assuming A, that it is secured and not all entirely unsecured. To the upside, though, you know, something I just want to unpack is you, you indicated upside participation through warrants. Uh, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with that, a warrant is effectively a derivative instrument, very similar to a, a call option, for example, that you'd be getting on the equity Correct. component. Um, how do you decide between, you know, you said co-investment alongside your partners versus warrants? Because I think warrants specifically have a little bit of a bad rap in that historically for the retail market, very expensive. And more recently in the SPAC kind of space, the special purpose acquisition companies, again, for our listeners not familiar, a lot of those founders, the guys kind of promoting investments used warrants to incentivize their sale thereof. So maybe if you can unpack the warrants and the co-investment part for us a little bit more. Sure. So, so really simply, when you know, as Westbrook, we're a solutions-driven provider of capital, right? So we don't have a prescriptive way of financing transactions, and it really does depend on what the sponsor or the borrower needs from us. Um, in in many cases, what we're talking about here is either a paid-for equity or free equity. In the case that either the the risk-return profile of our debt structure um, warrants or requires a an equity participation such that the kind of return associated with the risk is kind of in parity, right? That we actually think we're getting re- rewarded for the, for, the, for the risk we're taking. In some cases, to show alignment with our partners, we can co-invest as well. So it really does depend. And when I talk about warrants, yeah, warrants do have a bad rap in general. What I'm talking about is kind of free equity participation, um, almost an option, really. So it's an out-of-the-money option uh, or an in-the-money option. Um, or when we get the opportunity to co-invest alongside our partners, and that's actually putting cash up um, on completion. 
So Dino, when we were going through the halls of VITS, and I'm Richard, I'm not sure where you studied, but I certainly know where Dino studied. Uh, they taught. Oh, there we go. Okay. I'm sure you learned the same things there. Um, you know, all about these different kinds of instruments. And in this case, this is interesting because you've actually got two distinct, it sounds like two distinct instruments. One is very much on the debt side. One is very much on the equity side, creating this investment as opposed to, for example, one instrument like a participating preference share or a convertible loan, which sometimes can be structured to do something similar. I'm curious why it's structured as two different instruments. Is that because you would sometimes have had different co-investors with you in each one looking for a different return profile? Or is there another reason, you know, is it just to make things more difficult so that VITS can have better content for its exams? You know, what is driving that, uh, that decision? <laughs> Look, so the instruments are structured differently because they play in different elements of the of what we call the capital stack, which I suppose is uh, a term that is used to define where on a liquidation event, you know, in what priority people get repaid. So generally, and and we, and I think it's worthwhile as well goes to the point, taking a step back and saying why, you know, why do we think these kinds of instruments are so relevant now? But generally what we're doing is it's a negotiation with the borrower, right? And oftentimes, let's use an example. Uh, there's a property and the property's worth 100 and normal market terms would dictate that you would get somewhere between 55 and 60 against that property. Now, you might have a borrower who has a need for more. Maybe they want 70, maybe they want 80 kind of thing. And then you get into the negotiation of saying, well, okay, maybe we as a business have appetite to help you increase your leverage levels above what would be considered senior debt, right, into some of the, you know, more kind of highly levered areas that would often be referred to as mezzanine debt. But in exchange, we would like then to participate alongside you, Mr. Sponsor, in the equity for the privilege. Now, those are two different things entirely. Debt is contractually repayable at a point in time. It, it carries with it a coupon, and that coupon must be repaid. If there is ever an event of liquidation, the debt component gets repaid first. Equity has the ability to make the highest return possible. Why? Because you rank last generally in the capital structure. And so the reason for participating in both is, I suppose, because the risk profiles of both instruments are completely different. But when you staple them together as one, it can become very interesting for clients. And to Richard's point, that's where you get this ability to kind of create a debt-like risk profile with the potential to have equity returns to the extent things go the way you'd like them to go. So let's maybe unpack what that return profile looks like. And I mean, you've mentioned the yield component, which effectively comes out of the, the debt element of this, this hybrid instrument, as well as the equity. You know, what are typically the types of yields that you would see on the kind of deals that you, you would see in this space, as well as what your targeted returns would be in the equity side. And, and what I'm trying to get to here is that, and, and perhaps Richard, you can, you can jump in here. What I'm trying to get to is on a risk reward structure, I'm looking at, for example, there are listed value stocks that give me a, a free cash flow or a yield underpin and equity participation, theoretically. This is very different to that. So I would expect perhaps because of the debt component, a much higher yield, uh, and then maybe more risk on the equity upside, but that's not necessarily the case because sometimes your investment does as well, if not better than some of the listed companies out there. So when you put this together, is it really a question of the sum of the parts being worth more than, than the whole? Uh, Richard, what does that look like from an investor's perspective when I'm looking at expected returns? 
again, there's no typical, you know, every structure that we do is bespoke. And it, uh, as Dino said, it's uh, characteristics often do differ. But what we're aiming to do, right, is we're aiming to do a debt-like instrument, call it of the, let's say, 100 uh, rand that we invest, 100 pounds that we invest, kind of 80 to 90 of that would be in the form of debt and debt-like instruments. Right, that would generally attract a coupon of somewhere between 8 and 10%. Normally above base, right? And base in England is going up, which we can maybe chat about as well. Um, and a portion of that is cash paid, in you know, either quarterly or semi-annually. And a portion of that is what we call picked, which is effectively rolled up and accrued and paid when it can be paid, right? Um, then the equity instrument, which sits separately, or together, right? I think that's the other thing, right? We try and solve we try and solve the solution for the client. So they could just see one loan instrument, or they could have two different instruments, depending, right? And, and structuring concerns and tax considerations all factor in to how we do these these deals. And that equity instrument, like I said, is probably somewhere between five and ten percent of the total investment that we're making. And or sometimes we don't actually invest any capital and it just makes up the return profile. And really what we want to see is we want to see kind of 8 to 10% coupon and then maybe another 3 to 4 plus percent coming through the equity warrant to return somewhere in the region of kind of 15 mid-team returns for the risk we're taking. Um, net to investors, probably 12, 13% after all said and done. Over a 3 to 4 year period, that's, you know, uh, or a 3 to 5 year period, that's somewhere between 1.5 to 2 times money back. Um, in you know, if you're talking uh, multiples, and that's in hard currency, Richard. I mean, that's in that's in pounds, right? Pounds or euros at the moment. We only lend to to sponsors and and companies that are UK or European based. How's deal flow looking? You know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. What sort of companies are you seeing coming and knocking on your door and saying, guys, I'm looking for this kind of debt-led, I mean, use the term earlier, debt-led private equity. And I think that's what we've come to understand from this chat is the debt instrument is the basis for it to give that protection. And then there's ways to structure the equity on top. What sort of businesses are looking for this kind of money in this environment? So, I mean, from, from, from a UK perspective or from our perspective, we, we're sector agnostic. We probably can tell you what we don't do more than what we do do in, in that way. Um, look, a lot of these situations, a lot of the, the deals we do are all, I mean, they're all event driven, right? So either there's an acquisition, there's a change in strategic shielding, um, there's maybe a shelter that needs to exit. So there's always a situation that requires some capital injection to, you know, into the business. Um, less so from a growth capital perspective, unless it's a new strategy embarking on, let's say, a buy and build strategy, where you know, you're looking at a fragmented area of the, of the UK market and they want to go and acquire and, and create a portfolio of instruments or portfolio of companies, um, uh, which, which we've done successfully you know, a few times. Um, you know, the UK at the moment is in a very, uh, it's, in, it's in flux, right? I think the whole world's in flux. Um, and especially in the area that we focus on, which is the lower mid market, which we often call the forgotten middle, you know, we're starting to see what we normally see in, in, in cycles, which is banks retreating and they, 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 they go out of areas that they, they see as high risk. Um, and the low mid market, just by definition, is an area that they've always identified as a high risk area. They'll focus rather on the retail, the consumer, and obviously on the large corporates. And again, deal flow in that space for us has has, has definitely uh, accelerated. 
uh, and the quality of sponsors we're seeing looking for this type of capital is increasing. The other side is that private equity need to bridge that gap, right? So typically in a transaction structure, you would see senior debt somewhere between two and a half and three and a half times what we call EBITDA, operating profit. Um, the banks are kind of backing away from that. You know, that's where we, we come in, right? Um, you know, valuations are still running high. Um, sellers still have very high expectations of private businesses. Um, banks are still lending. There's a huge amount of competition from the private markets. I think we're seeing as people sell out of equities, you know, there's a lot of liquidity um, and capital flows into different areas of the market. So by no means is it like open season yet from a deal-making perspective, but you know, we, we can perceive in the next three to six months uh, more pain coming through the market, which you know we've been forecasting for a while. I think you've almost preempted the question I had, Richard, which was around deal flow. You know, how is this juncture in the markets? We spoke about rising inflation, rising yields. How has that impacted structurally, you know, what the market looks like? And you've addressed that with regards to deal flow. What does it mean in terms of the quality of the types of deals? You've alluded to that somewhat, but what's the quality of the types of deals likely to look like, depending on how far this rate hiking cycle goes? Uh, and why do I ask that? Is that that will fundamentally change, A, your expected returns, but B, also the potential risk. And it's all the more reason why your underwriting skill and the skill of a team like Westbrook becomes so critical is that, you know, your track record then becomes even more valuable in a market where deal flow might tick up, but underlying that the risks may certainly be escalating. Uh, Dino, perhaps you can come in here and, and let us know what that looks like certainly from from your perspective yeah look Mo, i think it's a critical consideration is that when you're in a tough market like we're in at the moment credit quality across the board is likely to decline right i mean that's that's just the reality of the situation so what does that mean i mean there's there's almost like this perfectly inverse relationship between this is an area where clients want to be a lot at the moment because they perceive the ability to attract or obtain higher returns whilst not necessarily having to assume the same level of risk as you would in equity as being attractive. But, but, but that also then results, I suppose, in a dearth of transaction flow at the underlying. So, and, and, and it doesn't mean necessarily that there aren't lots of deals to be done, but it does mean that the ability to do high quality deals will be lower. So the answer to that question, Mo, is that the good old principles of credit apply, right? Which is you've got to back, number one, an operator and a sponsor who you know to be quality and who you've vetted and been able to diligence. They've got to be also of high integrity. The business fundamentals need to be strong. And, you know, your leverage levels need to be reasonable given the context. I think also, though, there are other reasons that people do deals. People do deals with us because we can be quicker, we can be better, we can be faster, we can deal with complexity in a better way, etc. Um, maybe just as a final point, I'll answer your question with another question, which is that if you are in a market where times are tough, and if you're in a market where generally the credit quality of investments is, is, is worsening or the, the quality of businesses is, is, is getting tougher, where would you rather be? Would you rather be an equity investor? You know, Ghost made the point, you know, clients have seen 30% upticks in their portfolios in the past. Now they're seeing negative returns. And I suppose the thing about hybrid that we see so attractive is for us to see a negative return in debt means that all the equity has got to be wiped out first. 
and you know there's a there's a mathematical relationship guys between you know reducing interest rates and rising equities and now rising interest rates should if maths holds give rise to falling equities um, and so we think this is very nicely wedged in call it in the in the middle somewhere between debt and equity with the ability to get slightly higher returns in the process yeah i think just to add i mean look it's all about having like an intelligent risk philosophy and i think more more than that not getting caught up in the hubris as we we call it in the in the market you know for us and i think we're very fortunate like we have lots of people around us that have been through multiple cycles and they keep us real right and i think to be real in this environment and understand what is real is the key to this right now we're sitting in an environment where interest rates are rising and depending on how you look at interest rates in the UK or the US, the mean, if, if everything reverts to the mean, which we believe, UK base interest rates should be somewhere between 3 and 5%, right? We're at 1.25 and we were at 0.25 in January, right? So we're at the beginning of the interest rate cycle. If you look at inflation, okay, inflation might be transitory or it might be here for the medium term. We don't know. We've got to factor that in. Now, when you're looking at businesses, effect, especially cash flow businesses, right, where you're effectively lending against the forward cash flows, you know, that becomes incredibly hard to forecast, right? So the best thing to do is to be conservative, right? So you have moderate leverage because leverage is generally the killers in these businesses. You've got increasing labor cost. You've got supply chain issues. You've got general inflation. So you've got margin pressure, right? And then as we've discussed, I think, previously on podcasts, you've got unknown consumer or uh, uh, demand, right? So you don't know where that demand supply breaks, and therefore you need to be conservative. So when we're looking at stuff, we're looking back through the history, right? And, you know, we generally say history is a good predictor of future earnings, but then you've got to pick what is effectively, what is your base to start off? Some businesses have had COVID bounces. Some businesses have come off a low base from COVID. You know, where do you start? Where do you start to base the valuations of these businesses? Where do you start to base the value, the, the, the basis of leverage? These are all incredibly difficult subjective measures, right? And to your point, Mo, like we are seeing a lot of deal flow, right? Are we seeing a lot of deal flow that we are winning? Not as much yet, right? Because we're much more conservative than the rest of the market. We lost like three deals today that we bid on, right? Why? Because like we thought the value was lower and the, the break for the debt was lower. I'm very comfortable in our underwriting process that we lost those deals. Yeah, investment is about saying no. That's uh, that's how this game works, ultimately. So, Dino, something I want to ask you, because, I mean, Richard's obviously really close to the deals themselves. You know, there he is bidding on three deals and, and none of them have gone through and he's going to have to work even harder tomorrow and hopefully the trains are working. But you are dealing with clients a lot. We did get two signed term sheets as well, I'm just saying. Okay. I mean, it was a busy day. It was, no wonder you broke the trains. But, uh, you know, Dino gets to, to live the dream down here, playing golf and speaking to clients and going mountain biking and all these things I know he likes to do. And ultimately... I guess the story is, where do you put your money in this environment? You've talked about the pressure on equities. You've talked about the difficulties of, you know, margin compression. We see it in listed companies at the moment. You could put your money in gold and you can go gently sideways because gold appears to have forgotten how to go up. I'm not sure why, but it just has. You can put your money in Bitcoin and the only way to lose money faster than that is to own Alibaba shares, which I do. So I remind myself of that every time I want to laugh at Bitcoin. I mean, the point is there's not a hell of a lot of places to hide. You know, listed bonds when interest rates are rising, unless you're going to hold the thing to maturity, you know, you're going to take some pain there on the capital value when you try and get out. I mean, those conversations you're having with clients, you know, people trying to manage their wealth with a 
And, you know, everyone says long-term, long-term. Yes, that's true. But everyone's also thinking about, hey, I like money in 2023 as well. You know, short term, it's a year away. (laughs) What is going to happen? I mean, that is how people think. What's going on in those conversations you're having? You know, what's coming through? Look, guys, just to start, I am playing golf tomorrow, but it is my first round for the year. I'll have you know. It's a great question, and it's where the conversations with clients where most of the time is being spent at the moment. I mean, let's go through the ecosystem, right? Inflation, and, you know, in the, in the high single digits in hard currency terms. I mean, the, the UK, well, the US came out, I think, above eight. The UK is sitting at nine at the moment. Now, the question is, is that transitory or is it here to stay? I, I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that question, but it's likely transitory at those levels, but, but will remain high into the future. So what do you do? You can invest in cash, you know, base rates are like at one in hard currency. Uh, you know, you probably get less than that in a bank account. So you can't invest in cash because you're going to get poorer in real terms. Then you can invest in bonds. Problem with bonds is that yields are still quite low. There's a heck of amounts of volatility at the moment that we're seeing uh, as the markets bounce around. And to your point, if interest rates go up, you then have uh, mark-to-market losses. So bonds might be a bit of a challenging place to invest. Then you can move up the, the curve and say, okay, well, inflation's high. I've got to invest in equities because that's the only way I'm going to be able to beat inflation. The problem with equities is that they are likely to underperform, in my opinion, over the medium term, given the way the market is constructed and the fact that we are, for the first time in 30 years or whatever it is, in an a secular increasing interest rate environment. So clients are kind of out of options. And that's where I think we are going to see globally record flows into into alternatives. I mean, it, it is becoming, it, it, the time is coming for alternatives. Let's say it like that. Because what alternatives offer to clients is the ability to get outsized returns relative to the level of risk taken. I mean, you know, 12%, 13% in sterling for a debt-led approach to investing, not bad, right? Um, but across the board, I think alternatives are going to play a, an increased role also because of tax efficiency, also because of lack of volatility, diversified sources of return, etc. What is the catch? The catch in alternatives is generally always the same, which is illiquidity. You can't get your money out tomorrow if you need it. And I'll tell you the thousand reasons why that's a good thing, starting with forced behaviors are generally good behaviors. But you know, this is an element of a wider investment portfolio. I'm smiling and nodding my head. And obviously, our listeners can't see this. But the reason for that is, is Dino's hit the nail on the head for me, is that he mentioned bonds are a difficult place to hide. And I was going to say, you know, what about convertible bonds? Because that's a hybrid instrument, you can get convertible bonds, they listed. But there's the mark to market on a convertible bond that's going to mess with investor psychology. And that's really the key point here around alternatives. When Dino said liquidity and forced behaviors, that's really where I think you know the, the rubber hits the tarmac, is that the structure of alternatives plays itself towards driving investment style behavior rather than trading style behavior. And I think that's the key distinction for me. And that's why I say it's more of a comment than a question is that the alternatives, the space you guys play in, I, I can find those payoff profiles either directly you know, in the listed market or using the components, whatever it may be. You can find that, especially if you're a sophisticated investor. What you can't find is that your structure allows me to craft it in an investment mind frame and then to force that behavior. 
because notwithstanding how disciplined or smart I might be in choosing my instruments, my psychology at some point in time is going to mess with me. And that's something that Ghost and I have discussed time and time again on the show. So, do you know, just again, affirming what you had said there, I think that's really the critical point or the selling case for me around alternatives versus the conventional, even if they be hybrid asset markets in the listed, in the listed space. So just something that I want to touch on while we still have time for anyone listening to the show going, okay, I'm tired of losing money and everything else. I'm keen to get involved in alternatives. What does this look like? So one of the limitations you raised is liquidity and that creates another whole set of limitations, right? It's not really for a retail audience. You can't go onto your Easy Equities account and buy an investment in a Westbrook fund that does alternatives. That's just not how this game works. So for those who can get access, I mean, unfortunately, the nature of the structure of these things, illiquid, bespoke deals. I was laughing earlier because my uh, the lovely Mrs. Ghost who's sitting behind me once famously read something out loud and then she became Afrikaans halfway through and she said bespoke instead of bespoke. I don't know why she thought that was an Afrikaans word. And I cannot say bespoke anymore. I just say bespoke and people look at me like I've lost my mind. So, you know, these bespoke <laughs> investments that you specialize in, unfortunately do require generally a higher balance sheet. So I think for anyone listening to this, you know, do you know it'll be useful for them to understand like, what is my ticket to the game? You know, at what point can I pick up the phone to Westbrook or send them an email or say, hey guys, you know what, I'm interested or I'm going to speak to my financial advisor. You know, what sort of numbers are required to get in there in any of the funds, not necessarily in this one? The minimums are higher, Ghost. Um, you know, in, in, in hard currency terms, they're normally in, in and around the $100,000, $100,000 pound per investment mark. In rands, normally a million and above. The, the, the trick is... And it's important for, for clients to understand this for, for a multitude of reasons. The trick is, is if you can use your wealth manager to access our products. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. First of all, the way we look at wealth managers is as an aggregation, right? So if a wealth manager takes 100 clients in the back end and gives us one allocation on behalf of them, you know, you, you can then get a ticket to the game at a much smaller quantum and it doesn't impact us because we see it as one single investment coming uh, in from our side. But also the nature of alternatives is, unless you are a very sophisticated investor, I'm not convinced all the time that this is something you should be doing on your own unless you have a real depth of knowledge of, you know, what it is that you're investing in. Westbrook will do everything, you know, in, in our power at the investment level to give the client a great investment. But what we're not is wealth managers. We're not in the world of saying this is where you should allocate and what percentage and what risk profile and so on. Um, so I think really wealth is is a key element in this whole value chain of investments. If you would like to get in at smaller minimums, I'd contact them and challenge them with contacting us. I'd like to just make one more point there. If you want to get into a qualifying investor hedge fund in South Africa, you need a million bucks. So these numbers you're talking yeah. about are not are not outlandish or silly. They might sound very high to some of our listeners, obviously, but you have to understand this is an investment class that is typically aimed at high net worth individuals who have portfolios that are often multiple times that size. And this is an allocation of a part of their portfolio into alternatives. So, you know, the reality is when you get to those sort of levels, you know, you can either take this as two ways. Either this is an opportunity set you can use right now if you have that kind of ammo, in which case you know who to get hold of, or this is the kind of stuff you can work towards because these are the opportunities that open up to you in life when you get to that level. So in some ways, it's also, I think, a great motivator, actually, because the world of finance becomes really interesting the more money you have, bluntly. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah, and it's also a factor of take-up, right? I mean, the, the first of anything tends to be 
expensive and available to the few. And to the extent that things become more mainstream and more widely adopted, so too the, the level of adoption increases. And I think alternatives are on that path, right? There, there's a whole host of things, Ghost, that need to happen for alternatives to be more widely accessed. Wealth managers need to get used to it. Regulatory reform needs to take place in South Africa such that we can actually legally in, bring an investor in below a certain quantum, etc., etc., etc. Platforms need to actually have their to figure out how one can hold. You know, every investment platform that I've come across locally is tailored for shares that are priced every day and that you can click buy and sell. If you put something in where you can't click buy and sell and where there's a price that comes through every quarter, the thing explodes, right? So there's a variety of things that need to be put in place in order for alternatives to be made more accessible. We're not there yet, but certainly if I'm a listener listening to this thinking, geez, that's just a bit too far for me. First of all, don't worry, because if you're listening to Mo and Ghost, you'll be very wealthy very soon and then you will be able to make the minimums. Uh, but secondly, so too the minimums will come down in a natural evolution through time. Yeah, do you know, I think I think my takeaway from this, and again, I think this is all we have time for, is that if you are a smaller investor, it doesn't mean you're shut out of this very interesting, exciting world. What we do think you could do is speak to your personal financial advisor and ask them to go and find Westbrook. So maybe to, to wrap up the show, you know, what, what's the website? Where can financial advisors who are listening to this very show, because there are a number of those, where can they find Westbrook? Where can they find out more about some of your solutions and some, uh, some of your funds? Yeah, sure. So the website is westbrook.co.za. I think you can go there and find a host of information uh, around what you're looking for. And uh, I look after distribution and product development of the group. So if you're an advisor and you'd like to learn more, you can contact me. And on Twitter, it's at Dino Zucco, Z-U-C-O. Um, or you can send me an email or uh, contact me on the phone. The information's on the website. We're always available for a chat. And there you know, are very few people who we're not uh, very keen to have a conversation with. There we have it. Dino's home address is... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you know where Dino's playing golf tomorrow, you can find him. So, chaps, thank you so much. Richard, I particularly thank you. You went through a lot to be here on time. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate the time. I know you had to dodge your kids downstairs. Go pour yourself something cold and relax. Dino, enjoy the golf tomorrow. Uh, Mo and I will keep working because we can't afford the, the Westbrook minimums yet, but we're trying. Uh, but on a serious note, thank you. And I would encourage our listeners to go back to the previous Westbrook podcast. There are like probably four or five of them now, I'm not sure offhand, and every single one is a fantastic learning opportunity about alternatives, whether you are at the level of investing in them or not. You know, Take the opportunity, grow your knowledge, and chat to the guys. They really are very open for a conversation. So Dino, Richard, thank you, and Mo, uh, we'll be back next week. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor